You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Growth stocks post an epic snapback rally. The stimulus bill includes $86 billion for failing pensions. And what does the latest Robinhood data indicate about the rise of the retail trader? For all of this and more, I'm joined by Real Vision Managing Editor, Ed Harrison. Ed, welcome. How are you doing? Good. Happy Monday, Jack. Uh, it's Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> it's supposed to be Monday. You know, That's our day. But Tyler, he, uh, he preempted me. But yeah. Happy Tuesday instead of Happy Monday. Yeah, you got the instinct right. Well, Ed, you know, you and I chose to be on today. What a day it was. Uh, the Nasdaq had a tremendous rebound. What did you make of this snapback in in tech and stocks? Yeah, I mean, it is amazing. I think a lot of it has to do certainly with uh, retail investors. Uh, another part of it has to do with what happened in rates. You know, I obviously think a lot about rates and I lead with rates. Uh, if you look across the curve spectrum in the U.S., rates were down. Uh, they were at 160 on the 10-year. Now they're at like 154, 155. So that's five basis points, uh, six basis points of relief. And that gave people an opportunity after a 10% a decline, you know, an official uh, correction in the in the Nasdaq to really get into those shares. And you know, I was looking at my screen. I have a screen of you know the most uh, the 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 most eye popping shares, and they're all way up. GameStop, for instance, up twenty seven percent. I'm looking at Zoom, ten percent. AMC, thirteen percent. Tesla, almost twenty percent. Neo, seventeen percent. Eleven percent for Square. Uh, 10% for Roku. And, you know, obviously, Kathy Wood's ARC Innovation, which invested a lot of these, is up 10% as a result. And, and Nikola, only up 8%. How terrible is that? Yeah, Nikola is really slacking. Uh, Ed, when you were, you were pausing to, to think of the word, you said eye-popping for these stocks. The word that I was thinking of was bubblicious. Uh, as you say, Tesla up 19.3% today. Uh, Peloton, DocuSign, following it, um, and there's many other stocks that you mentioned. Uh, Ed, there's some just the sheer magnitude of the gain today in Tesla, which is uh, you know one of the largest stocks in the S and P 500, a 19, almost 20 percent gain. That is the third uh, largest daily increase in the stock in the history of Tesla. Ed. Yeah, um, and you know I think a lot of things are at work there with uh, with Tesla. And with some of these other names, I mean, we already know what's going on with GameStop in terms of the, uh, the the retail investment crowd. But the same is probably true in some of these other names. And then really, when we look at the algos uh, that are uh, passive investing, all of that on top of it, what we see, therefore, is, you know, the, the ability for uh, momentum to move abruptly in one uh place or another. I think it was 120 some days that we went from the peak to the trough back up to a new high in uh, in March, uh, February, March, April, May of uh, 2020. 
So markets are moving on a dime. And uh, a lot of that has to do, as I said, I believe with uh, the retail investor. And I think you and I, we, we're gonna, we can continue to talk about that a little bit more in the, in the show. Absolutely. And I look forward to talking about the, the retail investor, especially with regards to GameStop, which is, on, is a skyrocketing. Uh, when you say algos, Ed, are you saying that when, when rates, when, excuse me, when bonds sell off um, and, and uh, or excuse me, when, when bonds rally um, and, and rates decline, that the, the money from algorithmic traders automatically goes into those high duration stocks? In other words, it's not so much a sentiment play. It, it is algorithms, whether they're rational or not, that are calling the shots to some degree. You know, part of it certainly is a rotation, but the rotation is also happening automatically as a result of, of stylistic uh, changes. Uh, what, what's what's happening? The the stocks du jour, and then the algos get on top of that, and then do momentum. I, I'm on the board of a of a um, economics group, and we have uh, a, a a group who trades for us. Uh, the, the that's the endowment of this uh, this school, this economic school that I'm on the board of, mm -hmm. and they're basically a momentum uh, uh, company. That is, is what they're doing is is they're uh, looking at what's hot, they're moving in that direction, and then when it stops being hot, then they pull out, and you know they they change their cash allocation, their equity allocation based upon momentum. There are a lot of algorithmic trading philosophies that are proliferating. And that means that, you know, when you get these snapbacks, as you called it, um, they're pretty severe because it, suddenly all of the algos kick in and, and, you, and you get that massive move. Mm. Ed, uh, before we move on to the retail traders, I just want to get a quick uh, little bit of price action out of the way. Uh, gold uh, surged over 2% today. Uh, it was at the lowest levels uh, since April of last year. 10-year ed, as you say, is uh, back below 1.55%, that high being roughly 1.68%. I'm not a technical trader, so I'm not going to call it a resistance level, but but you know, there there you have it. Um, and then Bitcoin above 54,000 and oil and copper taking taking a, a pause uh, while the other growth names pick up, um, the other tech, tech stocks, I mean. Um, but Ed, let's get into retail trader, because I know uh, you sent me this this article uh, early today, and you've been thinking about the retail trader a lot. Obviously, we had uh, GameStop surge. Um, you know, uh, it, it went back down below fifty uh, in the forties um, in in mid February. Since then, it's up over four hundred and eighty percent today, standing over two hundred and thirty dollars. What do you make of this remarkable price action, Ed? Yeah, well, obviously, you talked about bubblelicious. Certainly. You can definitely say that with regard to the prices of a lot of these things. It doesn't mean that it can't get more bubblicious over time. But the article, I think, points out some great things. These are two guys who I know, uh, uh, who we follow each other on Twitter. Uh, I've been following and uh, chatting back and forth with Katie Martin and Robin Wigglesworth of uh, the FT for over a decade now. They wrote an article called Rise of the Retail Army. The amateur traders transforming markets is uh, uh, what they also put down there. And this is something that they wrote up. I thought the interesting bit were some of the charts. For instance, if you think about market structure, first of all, the one, they, they looked at from 2010 to 2021, there's a, 
Uh, it shows what percentage of the ty the stylistic types of investors, the stylistic types of trade are taking the volume. So the highest is high frequency trading. You know, that's almost half of the volume. But when you look at uh, all the other styles, the one that really pops out is retail. And it has a really kink up uh, from 2019 to today, going from, let's say, in the order of 15% up to soon to be 25% of all um, trades that are made. So retail is the second most powerful group after high-frequency trading out there in terms of turnover of volume on the stock exchange today. And that really is such a big deal, uh, Ed. The, the 2000s bubble was marked by a noticeable pickup in uh, participation by retail. In, in the article today, um, the, the authors, who I didn't know that you, you know them, by the way, that's, that's cool, uh, they, they say that, uh, they, they record that in the early onset of the pandemic, uh, the retail traders were plowing into the re reopening stocks, if you can call them then, the ones that were the most adversely affected, your cruise liners, your, airliner, your airliners, your you know, Boeing, uh, oil companies like that, they were buoyed on that wave and they probably made, you know, if they, they didn't have uh, paper hands, they probably made an excess of 60%. And then they piled into that the big tech, your FANG stocks, your Apples, your Amazons, and they're buoyed by that uh, into, let's say, September. Since then, the FANGs have traded flat, but then they got into EV stocks, electric vehicle stocks, Tesla, SPACs. You had that fervor. And then I feel like the ultimate culmination was GameStop. But Ed, I feel like this journey was was over with GameStop, uh, but it, the price resurgence, you know, it, it did uh, rally on some fundamental news that that Ryan Cohen uh, is now going to be on a a committee to oversee um, e-commerce. But the news didn't strike me as a terrifically big deal. Certainly not enough to justify um, that price action. So, so Ed, how how do you how would you describe that? Um, you know, we have these changes. Uh, uh, retail traders, they command a larger share of, of the float, of the trading volumes. How does that impact the actual price action that we see? Yeah, I think it, it means that uh, when you think about valuations, uh, that uh, the traditional valuation metrics that we use really aren't as uh, in vogue. They don't really mean as much with regard to the price action. Uh, the way that they started out their uh, essay today I thought was kind of interesting. They said that when newcomers discover Robinhood and they decide to use this zeitgeist uh, trading platform, they the, the chief question that they ask is, what is the stock market? And then along with that is another question, which is, what is the S&P 500? Those are the, uh, th that's one of the most commonly visited educational pages on Robinhood's website. So these people, I mean, they're incredibly green Half of the retail traders that we see out there are are new to the markets in the last two to three years. So what you're seeing is people who have no idea uh, how to navigate the market. This is their first foray into the markets. And so what that means is uh, the traditional metrics that you measure uh, markets by in terms of valuation are less important as these individuals uh, make up a larger share of the trading volume that's that's the, that's out there. And by the way, the trading volumes that the, uh, Katie and Robin were looking at are the U.S. trading volumes. But you know, retail investors are also um, prevalent in many other 
developed economies. And a lot of this is driven by social media, uh, which is which is more robust, a much bigger deal than the way that retail investors could get together and band together back in the internet bubble uh, 20 some years ago. Ed, I'm, I'm so glad that you brought up that, that chart of the questions that the Robinhood traders, the retail traders were asking according to this, this flow chart, um, which is from the paper that those authors cite. For every thousand visit, uh, visitors to the Robinhood webpage, uh, 6.49 of them land on a frequently asked question, what is the stock market? 6.07% of them uh, land on what is the Dow Jones industrial average. So these are showing that these are investors who are at the beginning of their investing journey. Now, Ed, that does, that does obviously ring some alarm bells because you're thinking, okay, this is an extremely frothy market. These people are getting in at the top. Just to play devil advocate, um, Ed, though, you know, there are studies showing that if, if you invest, if you buy an S&P 500 index fund at the very top of the market uh, for, let's say four market tops, and you 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 know uh, allocate a consistent, uh, not huge but consistent and growing pile to your retirement, you can still retire a millionaire uh, even if you buy at market top. So I, you know what they say the the RIA phrase is it's not timing the market, it's about time in the market. So do you think that this uh, overall trend is a force for good of education? Um, of learning more about the markets, of, of, of spreading uh, you know, the, the, the financial markets and wealth creation to a broader swath of people? Or do you think that this is dangerous? You know, uh, obviously, we're getting to that point in the conversation where we have to ask that question because we've sort of danced around it. We haven't, I mean, we did mention the term bubblicious at one point, but I'll continue on your, um, your road about the devil's advocate. Because I think First and foremost, we know that these are all the signposts of market tops when lots of different people get into the market who are new to the market and they're ignoring all the traditional signals. This is what we saw in the Internet bubble. And of course, that ended badly. But I think what I was telling you earlier today before we got on is is that I was thinking about Amazon a lot. Um, I was thinking in particular and, and, you know, hear me out in terms of thinking about, you know, having a broader perspective on how this plays out that Amazon is a company that, even though we think of it as a juggernaut today, really, it hasn't always executed incredibly well. And it has gone through some difficult times, certainly at the end of the internet bubble, it went through some difficult times. And I think that all throughout this, there were people saying, wait a minute, Amazon's not even making any money. Uh, If you look at their... P.E. ratio, it's like a, a, a 500 times or 800 times. How is this possible? And, you know, eventually people started to understand uh, the Amazon story. And Amazon was saying, look, you know, we're just reinvesting the business. That's why the P.E. ratio is low. Uh, we will get there. You know, if you look at our free cash flow, it's incredibly high. So people were very patient with Amazon patient in a way that they were not with other stocks. I have to say that Amazon got a free pass and people were just wondering, when is this free pass going to be over? It did. It was never over. It's still not over. Uh, and I think this is what's happening today, that people are looking for the next Amazon. And the question is, is what does that mean in terms of are we in a bubble or not? I think what it means is, is that potentially companies that would have gone under or that would have succumbed 
as a result of a loss of liquidity. Maybe those companies can become the next Amazon because of what I would call patient investors, that somehow now uh, we have more patient investing uh, in the markets as a result of this influx of uh, new people who are willing to buy the dips and continue to invest in the market even after a 30% drawdown, a 50% drawdown. Uh, I'm not saying that I think this is actually what's happening, but I'm just saying think about that as a potential new paradigm. Yeah, I, I think, Ed, and this is my opinion, that up until, let's say, a certain rate, whether it's 30% drawdown, 40%, 50% drawdown, people will uh, have iron hands, have diamond hands. They will prove very strong. I don't think that people who own, let's say, Tesla or let's say DocuSign um, or, or some other you know, growth stock are prepared for a over 90% loss of capital. That is what we saw in Amazon was a peak to trough decline of I think 93, 94%. So yes, Ed, if you bought in 19, if you bought at the peak of Amazon um, and you you held it until now, that would have been a phenomenal investment. Uh, you may have the fortitude, Ed, to, to hold on to your investment. I don't know if I would have, if, it, if I saw it decline 94%. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at Tesla as you say that now. And if you remember, Tesla was bordering on like a, a trillion dollar market cap. Uh, the 52 week range high is $900 a share. You know, they went down to, I think, uh, you know, just looking at their chart before they popped back up yesterday, they were down to like 563. So, I mean, this is a stock that just got pummeled, you know, down 30, 40%. That's not 90%, as you were saying. It's not 95%. So somewhere between the levels of drawdown that we've seen in these uh, these shares, in these indices, and where we are, uh, where we were in the internet bubble, that's that's sort of the 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 point when people go from having diamond hands to you know uh, throwing in the towel. Uh, and you know, my general belief is is that 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 day will come. It's clearly not coming yet, and my general view is 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 that there's so much juice in the system right now in terms of stimulus that it makes it very difficult for it to come anytime soon. It's once we actually get to the reopening, uh, and then uh, you know we get the 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 so-called spurt, the bet pent up demand. And that ends, and then we get to the new normal. That's when we'll have the coming to Jesus moment for the people who are over their skis with regard to some of these bets. And, and you know, by the way, when I say over my over their skis, I, I'm going back to the FT article when, when they talked about you know that um, the uh, the trading frenzy in options is so high that you know massive amounts of retail investors are not just. Uh, getting into this, the underlying shares, they're actually bidding up the shares via leverage bets, uh, and 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 that's very dangerous. Absolutely, uh, and that is something that you know that I am very interested in is volatility. Uh, today, Ed was a tremendous rebound. I'm I'll be interested to see how your thesis plays out. You know, today, uh, I think Ark Invest was up about ten percent, almost eleven percent. That's almost as much of a recovery in a single day as the entire drawdown of the NASDAQ uh, was from its from its February highs that Tyler and I were making 
being such a big deal about yesterday. So uh, today is an epic recovery, but Ed, you mentioned the stimulus, so let's get on to that. Um, it, it passed over the weekend. A lot of key provisions in there for the uh, stimulus checks, uh, as well as aid uh, to states for, for educations and services like that. But Ed, something that I know you have your eye on is something that perhaps escapes the gaze of a lot of people, um, which is uh, pensions and the uh, government, the, this stimulus bill, essentially bailing out extremely underfunded pensions. Uh, what did you make of that? Of, of that? Yeah, I, I didn't make anything positive of it, to be honest with you. I mean, it sounds like the New York Times people who wrote this article feel the same way that I do, because here's how they start off. They said, uh, tucked inside the $1.9 trillion stimulus bill that cleared the, the Senate on Saturday is an $86 billion aid package that has nothing to do with the pandemic. Rather, the $86 billion is a taxpayer bailout for about 185 union pension plans that are so close to collapse that without the rescue, more than a million retired truck drivers, retail clerks, builders, and others could be forced to forego retirement income. So, I mean, right then there, it tells you what they're thinking. What they're saying is that this is $86 billion of pork, if you will, that's, that's hidden in this gigantic bill in order to bail out a specific class of, 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 of investors. And the one, the, here's the way that you can look at it. There, there are two different ways from a political perspective. One is, look, just like with the pandemic, these people, through no fault of their own, are caught between a rock and a hard place. They did the right thing. They they did their jobs for year after year. Uh, they were told that they had a pension that would be coming to them at the end of that time. And by golly, they should get that pension, given that they held up their end of the deal. We, as a government, have to make sure that uh, their employers can hold up their end of the deal. So that's the one thinking about it. The other thinking is, is wait a minute, you're going to do that by bailing them out, uh, but you're not even fixing the problem. You know, what is, what are the, what's the underlying systemic issue here in terms of why they're underfunded? I mean, when we're talking about ARK Invest and so forth, people shooting for the moon, trying to go after these big bets, that's because we live in a low interest rate environment. We live in a, or we used to live in a low growth environment. And, you know, the, the pickings are very hard to come by. And so when that's the case, pension funds that are underfunded become more massively underfunded and eventually they go bankrupt. Uh, someone's going to have to bite a bitter pill. It shouldn't be that they get the bailout. That's, that's, those are the two sides of the argument. And to be honest with you, I probably lean toward the second uh, side, but I understand the, the framing of the first side. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Ed, your, your first side, the first argument you made where you said, by golly, uh, that struck with me because it really isn't these employees who have made riskless, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, risky investments who haven't saved for the future. They have. They've given into uh, the, that retirement pool. It really is uh, the system 
that has resulted in this uh, persistent shortcoming, where, um, whether it's you know uh, union reps uh, saying that employees don't have to contribute a, a certain amount, um, and that way they can look really smart when they make a contract because they say, oh, we got a 10% raise, even though there's a something baked, baked in the cake that will lead to this problem down the line. Uh, and then there are obviously companies that want to skimp on uh, total uh, compensation. I, I view uh, what the, the and, and I, I don't want to speculate, you know, this is, this is my opinion, but um, don't you think that this is a necessary filling of the crack? And if that is necessary, uh, isn't that very scary? I, I think uh, it is a filling of the crack, uh, but it's not necessary in the way that it's done because it's not necessarily systemic. Let's say, let's say that uh, you have two different sets of employees. Employee set number one, we'll call them private sector employees uh, without unions. Uh, at some point in time, they work for the likes of IBM, they work for the likes of, of uh, you know, Microsoft. And uh, eventually, these companies say, wait a minute, you know, we can't give these guys uh, a pension plan, let's convert them to 401ks. Then there's another set of employees. Uh, their companies say, you know what, we know we can't afford to uh, keep the promises, but we've already promised them. We'll continue to do so and just see how it works out. Uh, the set here continues on their 401ks. They're the people who probably are helping to bid up uh, the shares that we were just talking about earlier. These other people over here, eventually their pensions are clearly underfunded to the point of bankruptcy. And they're about to basically get nothing. So the, what are the people over here who are uh, investing all their money into the 401k? What are they thinking about the people over here who got a bailout, who get a free uh, helping hand? They didn't get a helping hand. So there's, a, there's an equity problem there. Um, I don't know how you fix that. But at a minimum, you have to address the fact that it's an unrealistic expectation and to a certain degree, just like when Detroit went bankrupt, uh, some of those pension those pension plans have to take haircuts. So instead of getting a hundred cents in the dollar, you get seventy five cents in the dollar. You get uh, eighty cents in the dollar, whatever it might be. Something like that should happen. But instead, in the midst of a pandemic, in the middle of a one point nine trillion dollar package. They uh, shove this $86 billion aid package in there. They sneak it in so that no one knows that it's there. And to me, that's a, a sign of how government works in a way that people have distrust for. They distrust $1.9 trillion stimulus packages for exactly this reason. You make a compelling argument, Ed. And you are right that this is... Un almost unprecedented for a federal government or the U.S. to bail out a pension system. Um, I'm just reading that uh, from the New York Times that previous proposals to rescue the dying multi-employer plans called for the Treasury to make them 30-year loans, not send them no-strings-attached cash. So the previous solution was to send them loans so that they could uh, work, on, work on a payment plan and figure things out. Uh, this is just a, a pure uh, bailout. But Ed, I want to uh, uh, draw attention to something and I want to ask you about something that I noticed, which is that this is for multi-employer pension plans. It is a, uh, a group, uh, it, it is, it is uh, pension plans that have 
contributions coming from many different companies. It's, it's not a, a pension plan of a particular company. And for a particular company, the pension plan rules and regulations are actually very strict. So you tend to not get um, these drastic inequalities. However, for multi-employers, it's kind of the Wild West. Um, what did you make of, of that? And have you, have you been noticing this before of this multi-employer pension plan being a problem that could loom large going forward? Yeah, you know, I don't know enough about the intricacies, but let me just tell you what I understand to be true without looking it up, uh, that there is some sort of government backstop associated with multi-employer plans. So I think that the reason that they're getting differential treatment is that uh, it, there, there's, uh, there's some complexity there associated with uh, who's on the hook if these plans go bust. So I'm not sure exactly what the answer there is. Uh, maybe this is something for us to look into and then come back to. But I'm sure that that's part of why this happened. It's not that they're just giving freebies out. It's that the government is on the hook in some regard. And so they decided to, uh, to punt this forward, you know, uh, cough up some money now and hope that you know, these pension plans get uh, ARK Invest type of uh, returns and, you know, their underfunding goes away. But it's to me, it's a little bit like uh, what happened with the savings and loans when they in the 1980s got a reprieve. They just went and then they uh, made poor investments and it made their situation worse. And eventually we got fraud on top of that and the whole system collapsed. So ultimately, you just have to bite the bullet. Uh, if you're going to give a bailout, you should do it in a way that has some systemic rep, you know, uh, relief so that these issues don't crop up in the future, rather than just throwing money at the problem and hoping that it goes away. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting you mentioned uh, sort of investing in ARC Invest. That really has been the only recourse for retirees or, or for pension plans who have a huge gap between their liabilities uh, and their and their assets. Um, that actually is something that Rao mentioned, I think, over a year ago in our retirement campaign of investing in Bitcoin. And that seemed like a sort of outre idea, sort of very out there. However, if pension plans had done that, I don't know if any have, uh, that would have been a, a, a huge solution. But Ed, I want to ask you, other than finding investments which can net 20, 30, 40% per year gains, how will this uh, problem ever be solved for pension plans? You know, I mean, uh, that is the question. And I think it goes back uh, full circle to what you and I were talking about, the difference between a 90% drawdown and uh, the patient investor. Because ultimately what you want is, is you want Amazon to become Amazon, the next Amazon to become the next Amazon. And it can only happen if people don't panic and uh, and get the 90% drawdown. Is that Does that mean that Nikola, if you uh, invest in it and you give it enough time, that it will become a juggernaut? In I mean, just think about uh, the, the number of trucks on the road, uh, the infrastructure, how amazing that could be if we have uh, you know EVs uh, on the road uh, for all of the fleets that are delivering uh, packages across the country, across the continent in Europe, et cetera. Um, how, how long are people willing to wait for these companies to, to show that they actually have the executional uh, new to get these things done? 
I don't know. But uh, ultimately, if you want to make 20 or 30 percent, uh, those are the risks that you're going to have to take. And unfortunately, uh, some of these pensions are so underfunded that they're going to end up taking those risks, particularly in private investment. And we'll just have to see how that pans out. It's interesting you say that, Ed. That makes me think of the Federal Reserve because over the past uh, decade, more than that, they've kept rates artificially low. And as a result of that, let's say pensions, they need to make 6%, 7%, maybe even 8%. And they used to be able to do that by owning uh, treasury bonds, maybe a little bit of investment grade credit. Um, and that was really it, just pretty safe bonds. But now with interest rates at essentially zero, they say, okay, we'll get 2% by buying a 30-year bond, but that's nowhere even close enough. Uh, we got to get investment grade. Oh, that's not good enough. We got to get some, some junk yield. We need to go into alternative credit. We need to go into private equity. We need to go into small cap value. Uh, and some pension funds has, have even gone as low or maybe as high as selling volatility. And I think that is uh, some people uh, uh, like Corey Hofstein and, and Ben Eifert have noted that that is uh, a key reason, perhaps, of why VIX was was so low in the in the early 2010s. But Ed, thinking of the Fed, I know you have an interview that's uh, coming out on Thursday. You spoke with Chris Whalen, and he has uh, a very interesting interpretation of how the Federal Reserve's actions are affecting banks. So far over the past four months, Ed, you know, we've seen banks perform tremendously well as we have this, seen that yield curve pick up. Uh, Chris Whalen, however, says if the Fed enacts yield curve control, that could totally reverse. What what can you share with the audience about your key learnings of your talk with Chris? Yeah, so I think that uh, he thinks that there's there are hidden losses on the bank balance sheets and that the Fed's uh, manipulating the interest rate levers uh, in a way that suppresses longer term yields, uh, reduces uh, net interest income, uh, it reduces uh, the longer term ability for banks to earn money. And if you couple that with these losses from commercial real estate, because we are in a new normal that's completely changed from the old normal, uh, you have a situation where it may look good now, but when we think about the rotation into uh, cyclicals, into uh, value like energy and financials, he believes that actually, you know, now is the time to move back away from that trade and to uh, to look um, for more specifically in better better uh, financed uh, financials like uh, small and medium sized uh, companies under a hundred billion dollars in assets, or just to go elsewhere to to different parts of the the market. But he likes the smaller. Uh, regionals, but uh, he thinks that the larger ones, that that rally, it's pretty much uh, it's pretty much done. So that's going to come out on Thursday, and I think uh, very interesting conversation. Yeah, I always love listening to Christopher, and I, I really enjoyed your interview. I, I watched the interview again. It comes out on Thursday. Just on the small banks point, he said that small banks such as Fifth Third, Bank of the Ozarks, can make. Uh, 2% more, a 2% spread differential more on their loan book than can the JP Morgans or the Citigroups of the world who are having to compete with financial uh, um, syndicates around the world, like, you know, sovereign wealth funds for loans. Instead, they have, okay, there's a, there's a butcher and they have 10 stores and we know what they do. And because they're so small, they can really find that niche. 
Uh, however, he did say that if things get really extreme in, in terms of yield curve control and the big banks have nowhere else to go, they, I, there was a phrase he said, the big banks could get hungry and it could become <laughs> like Jurassic Park. That was one of my favorite phrases from the interview. Right, Jurassic yeah. Park. Yeah, I'll, I'll leave it with this. Um, uh, uh, when I think about the Fed, I would look at it from a different perspective. Because when you think about the Fed intervening and saying they were going to buy up uh, corporate bonds, maybe even junk ETFs, and that stopped a drawdown of 30%. So going back to this whole concept of the difference between 30% and 90% drawdown, it really does boil down to the Fed in many regards. Because eventually we're going to get a drawdown that is going to have to require a Fed put. How much of a Fed put is there and when is the Fed going to actually enact that put? Uh, how far down do markets have to go? And how much carnage will occur before the Fed intervenes? Maybe uh, they'll, they'll intervene too late. And what was 40% becomes 70% overnight uh, before the Fed can really get a, a hold of things. And that's because everyone is selling, because those diamond hands turn into weak hands and uh, you know, that's, I think, what I'm most afraid of. That, from my perspective, that's the real risk uh, with the Fed. Uh, and, and that's something that we won't see, probably given the amount of stimulus that's in the system, I would say, until we get to the full reopening and, uh, and, and we've worked off all of this, uh, this pent-up demand. That really is the key question, Ed. And what a way to end it. Um, and end it uh, on a high. Ed, thanks so much for joining. Um, talk soon. Yeah, I love it, Jack. Uh, good to talk to you. Thanks, Ed. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.